welcome back to another episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. This is your host, Dr. Jack Chuang. I'm a psychology professor teaching from Texas for a couple of colleges in Washington. And often when I introduce myself or even in writing, I feel the need to help people out with the pronunciation of my name. In Texas growing up since middle school age, my last name has really been butchered. Um, think of all the combination of vowels you can think of and surrounded by a CH and NG, and you pretty much get everything. Uh, but in any case, oftentimes I write it out, even though my name is technically one vowel, I mean, sorry, one syllable, Chuang is one syllable, I spell it out so that for people to pronounce it correctly, at least in English, because it sounds different in Mandarin or Taiwanese, of course, that uh, I use, I break it down to two syllables, Chu, like C-H-O-O, and Wong, W-O-N-G. So if you combine that, Chu, Wong, and then you just make it sound more natural, then you'll get it. I remember when I used to do talks, uh, seminars, and speeches, and trainings in organizations, and in my little introductory portion, I would often just make the same joke over and over, but it seems to work pretty well. You know, when I introduce myself, I say, hey, my name is Jack Chuang, but y'all can, let me help you pronounce my name. It is pronounced Jack, right? And that usually gets a laugh, and my daughter would probably call that a dad joke. Anyway, if you're listening for the first time, you're probably a little disoriented. Uh, you're expecting a psychology lecture. But I have all those lectures in my channel. Just scroll down to the beginning, and you'll see them all sorted in order of chapter, as well as many singular topics. And the rest of the time, I just kind of shoot the breeze and talk about what I want to talk about which I'm sure I'll have to change over time. We'll see how it goes. Now today, what I wanted to do was to catch up a little bit on responding to listener mail. And I think it's kind of awesome that I get emails and tweets. Um, but there's another function in Anchor that uh, where I host and produce the podcast that many people don't realize is that I believe if you look in the description at the very, very bottom, there are a couple of links. One is support this podcast, you know, of course. And these are embedded, okay? These are, I mean, these are inserted in the description whether I want them there or not because I produce these in Anchor. And one of them is has the, the message in the URL, right? Leave a message. That's to leave a voice message. And I thought, you know, I've always enjoyed podcasts where People call in and leave a message, and then the host can respond to it. So down the line, if I get enough of these voice messages, I would love to put them on future podcasts and have a chance to answer them. I think it would just make things a little bit more lively, like we're having a conversation instead of me doing the talking the whole time, and then I lose my voice halfway, and you know, you've heard me do that before, <laughs> like just now. All right, so let me take a swig of my hot tea here while I look over my list of uh, mail. 
Oh, I wanted to start off by, hey, I sound a lot better now. I wanted to start off by thanking uh, Greg, who is a pre-med student, who has written me a few emails letting me know that my psychology podcasts were actually quite helpful for him to prepare for the MCAT uh, medical school entrance exam. So, and also he is the first one to ever actually send me money to buy me a coffee, like a donation. So that's my first ever donation in the podcast. So thank you, Greg. That's a little shout out to you. You know who you are. Okay. So what's going on this week? I thought I'd think about what's happening this week before I actually go to the viewer mail. Um, yeah, just another one of those weeks. I, I guess we're feeling kind of grateful. You know, the Texas storm is over. We're into a new month now. The weather's actually getting quite warm and very comfortable. So it's kind of odd that the weather's actually very nice while many people are still um, dealing with maybe not having running water and still repairing broken pipes. We have a neighbor just across the street that has virtually, I think, at least two to three rooms worth of furniture and belongings just out on the curb because her uh, ceilings have collapsed and water damaged pretty much everything in those rooms. So it's a whole sidewalk. It's really quite tragic, a sidewalk full of things. And we have a neighborhood Facebook group, which I think is very, very helpful. People do come out and step up and help out when possible. So I think that's pretty cool. One positive use of social media. Um, oh, another thing that I thought was kind of interesting was, I don't know if I talked about this before, but I just got new glasses for the first time in many, many years because back in 04, when I finished my doctorate, I celebrated by getting LASIK eye surgery. Yes, I know that's not really a thing, but that's what I did. Uh, for the longest time, I had just had really thick glasses, really poor eyesight and distance vision, nearsightedness, that is. And I couldn't use contacts anymore. My eyes got way too dry, so i just been wearing glasses. And then I decided, man, I'm just going to have to do it. I figured if baseball players are getting it done, it must be safe, which is really faulty logic, but I had it done anyway. And it turned out fine. Um, it's not like in the av advertisements, in the commercials, where people would say, oh, the moment I open my eyes, I can see the alarm clock from across the room, and that's a bunch of crap. Your eyes are basically very uncomfortable for quite a while before uh, you can actually go through a day without using eye drops. But anyway, so for many years, I didn't have to use it. Then when I turned 40, early 40s, I started to have, uh, I guess, farsightedness, right, where you can't see close. With You know, those two terms, I always get confused. I don't know nearsighted, farsighted, so I needed reading glasses. So those are the only kind of glasses in addition to sunglasses that I've been using for years. And until this past week, or a couple of weeks ago, where I picked up my first pair of real glasses, you know, prescription from an, from an optical place, I learned that the proper way to clean your glasses is by washing them in warm water and a little bit of soap. I had no idea. Right, all this time, I've just been wiping it using my T-shirt, probably scratching these lenses like crazy. Anyway, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Then I started YouTubing it, and then I went down this rabbit hole about the proper way to clean your lenses. 
and there are all these uh, very geeky, nerdy uh, videos about how people. And there's one guy who used uh, dishwashing liquid, right? And you know how concentrated that stuff is, right? Usually a couple of drops on a sponge, and you can wash a lot of dishes. So he says, well, I usually put a little bit on each lens, and you know, he put like four, four squirts, like one squirt on each side of the lens. I'm thinking. That's a whole tub, and everybody said that in the YouTube comments. I thought that was pretty funny. All right, so that's my uh, realization. I'm the dumbest PhD person ever to not even know how to clean my eyeglasses. And I posted a U YouTube video, and then some of my friends commented. and said, yeah, that's what I do too. Okay, great. Okay, let's go ahead and go into some listener. I'll just call it mail. They're either traditional emails sent to me or... Uh, direct messages on Twitter. I do get occasional just at mentions on Twitter, Twitter replies with, with a quick, uh, hey, your podcast is great, thanks. And I really appreciate those too. It makes my day, by the way. So don't hesitate to contact me. Don't think that these podcaster people are just too busy. Uh, not really, okay? Well, I am busy, but we really do love getting, I can only speak for myself, I really do love getting these messages and I have some close friends who are listening and it makes me really self-conscious so um Daniel yeah you know who you are okay uh, and Cornelia there I said your names okay so let's look at the first uh mail okay I, I won't give out names so you kind of know who you are that wrote and, and some of these messages are from all over from the UK from India those are like two very common geographical areas where I'm getting feedback from so that's kind of cool I try not to look too much at these uh, charts performance charts for the podcast like where am I ranked because um, that would just make me really sad but uh, oh speaking of sad uh, let me tell you a little bit that uh, just trying to be transparent and honest with my listeners and and just to let you know that there's really no shame in talking about these kinds of things is that uh, I haven't seen a doctor about it yet, but I, I will soon, is that I think for most of my life, I may have been suffering from dysthymia, right? So now you're going to start Googling, what the heck is that? Those of you taking psychology course probably remember seeing that in the psychological disorders. It's under mood disorders. It's basically a very low line not the, not the best word, low-level depression, okay? Now, it's not necessarily something that would be debilitating. It just sort of hovers there um, where a person has reduced motivation. So they have some symptoms of depression, but just not as pervasive as major depression, where for at least two weeks, someone has a list of symptoms that are quite debilitating, Okay. And I thought, well, maybe I could, maybe this is biochemical. Is I don't think my circumstances really have caused me. Well, it's not just because of the pandemic. It's, it's just sort of been there most of my life where I felt like, well, how come I don't really laugh heartily out loud very often? Or I don't, I'm not very proactive uh, as much as I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm really good at making to-do lists, but then a day goes by and I may not have gotten many of it done, much of it done from that list, right? So there's a spark of motivation there, but then 
not much follow through. For example, the house that we're staying at, we're basically house sitting for a relative who is not who works uh, overseas, and and as a trade off, we will we're fixing up the house, right? Whatever needs fixing. Well, the garbage disposal needs replacing. There are a couple small leaks under many sinks. And they're on my to-do list, and I just sort of move along every day. And I finally got around to installing, and I don't know what it is. It takes like an act of Buddha or something to get me to open up the box of the new garbage disposal, go into the kitchen sink, watch a YouTube video, and it's incredibly easy to do. And I just did it, right? So I kind of know intellectually that it's not that hard to do, it's not you know, beyond my capability. I mean, when I was younger, I used to work on my car on my own and and, and that wasn't a problem. And So I'm fairly handy, but for some reason, as the years have gone by, there is this sort of bias towards putting things off to not work on something right away, which is the opposite of my father. He's been bothered by a leaky faucet uh, actually, a pipe underneath the faucet, right? So luckily, his pipes at his home didn't break during the winter storm. But, but you know, he was he, he felt bad about calling a plumber, knowing how busy they are. But you know, I I called the plumber on his behalf, and the guys did a great job. But but then there was a small drip that they needed a second trip to sort of make adjustments. But that small drip was enough to keep him occupied mentally and and anxious until it got fixed. He said, oh, that's just my personality. You know, if there's a little thing that needs to be done around the house, if I don't get it done, it just drives me nuts. So that's a little bit opposite of me. I'm almost too laid back where I know there's a lot of things to do, but I can go through a whole day without getting to them and it doesn't bother me. Well, it might bother me to some extent, but um, you know, it's, it's kind of odd. So I feel like that description of what dysthymia is kind of fits with my mood and a lot of times when people have dysthymia or or have a lot of symptoms of anxiety or depression oftentimes we can tell ourselves that we that's our personality that's just how we are without knowing that well maybe who we are is being masked by something so um, I did a little research. I've always known that St. John's wort, the um, supplement, the herbal supplement, has been shown effective and empirical. There's empirical evidence for it for moderate to mild depression. So I just started that yesterday. So obviously if I f- tell you that I feel great <laughs> since yesterday, that's a placebo effect, right? Those of you psych students know what that means. So a placebo effect is basically feeling the effect of what a real medication would have, even though you're not taking the real medication, you're taking a fake pill, a sugar pill, they call it. Uh, That's not supposed to have any kind of effect. So that's the power of the mind at work, right? Uh, And some drugs that are tested are actually no better than a placebo. So it tells you how powerful the mind is that we can fool ourselves into believing that something we're swallowing with water will have the actual effect that something made in a lab was supposed to have. All right, so those are my couple of anecdotes for the week, I guess. Um, Talking about my my amazing discovery of how to clean 
eyeglasses to me starting a regimen of St. John's wort. It was kind of interesting reading up on it. Apparently, it's not something that is completely harmless, like drinking tea, but you can break up the capsules and make it into a tea. I found that interesting. But it basically said that treat it like grapefruit. People avoid grapefruit because it has a lot of interactions with other medications. And so I figured, well, I'm not taking any medications, so maybe it's a good time I can just give this a try for a few months and see if it has some sort of gradual effect. All right, so wish me luck on that. And again, I'm not giving medical advice. Um, I'm not qualified to do that, so please uh, be smart about that whenever I'm sharing about something like that. It's not about, oh, everybody should be doing this, or you should buy. I'm not hawking it. I'm not selling it, okay? All right, what are we doing here? Oh, yes, listener mail. Okay, here's the first one. Um, one person really wanted me to talk about forensic psychology, and I'm going to tell you, no, I'm not going to talk about forensic psychology because I don't know too much about it. Now, I could spend a couple of weeks reading some books about it, then do a podcast, but I know my limitations. So what I would suggest for my listener, and I know that's kind of disappointing, like, what, he's not answering it? Um, there are some really good podcasts out there on forensic psychology. It is a popular field, popular enough that there are experts out there who can explain and talk about it. And from the perspective of real legal cases, um, and trial experiences, like court trials, right? So I think that's where you need to go. And also just fundamental forensic psych textbooks. They're, they're, you can find them in public libraries. That should be a good start for you. Okay, so um, I think it's a strength to tell people you don't know something. All right, here's the second piece of uh, email. All right, blah, blah, blah. Thank you very much. I'm grateful for the podcast. Glad I found it. This week's topic's... Oh, okay, this person was suggesting that I talk about some topics within the field of social psych. And again, um, just because of everything, everything that was happened, I'm not really prepared to create some new social psych lectures from scratch. Um, so I apologize about that. But I can talk a little bit about it. I mean, social psych was where I started graduate school in, in that particular field, and I really love it. So... If you find my social psych lectures and topic lectures in my podcast channel, you can tell that I really love this stuff because um, you can't escape it. So social psychology is basically the study of the individual uh, and how we think, feel, and behave in social situations. So how does our environment, the people around us, whether we're in groups, whether we're at work, whether we're driving in traffic, uh, how do we respond in a variety of situations, right? So some topics the student was studying had to do with attraction, relationships. And you know, one of the things that's interesting about the attraction research and relationships is that proximity, just physical distance, right? We're talking about feet, miles, yards, meters, whatever you want to call it. It's a, the, one of the greatest predictors, in other words, factors, that you will end up being close friends or in a relationship with another person. It's stronger than oftentimes religion or other common interests that you kind of would assume would uh, have two people attracted to one another. But um, they've done studies 
many, many years ago in apartments and dormitories where they just sort of, and also in trainings where they had people had assigned seats, right? And so a bunch of strangers, this is a great time to do an experiment on that. It's not really an experiment. It's more like an observation, but technically speaking. So let's say in a police academy, I recall there's one study that was done where the new cadets were sitting in assigned seats, right? And they wanted to, by alphabetical order of the last name, so all the Andersons and whatever, you know, then all the Zs are in the back row kind of thing. And they gave them surveys and made observations and interviews. And by the end of their training, they figured out that whoever paired up with another person and said that I spend the most time with this person was the people sitting closest to them, right? So if you're a student and if you think back to your classroom, ah, the glorious classroom days, you might realize that, wow, you know, I think it was just by chance that some of my best friends in life that I met during those college years were those that happened to be sitting in the same row as myself, right? I can tell you that two of my best friends that I met during my undergraduate days at the University of Texas when I was an electrical engineering major. Yeah, I know that's a big shock, right? To go from electrical engineering to psychology. <laughs> and what was funny was that um, one of my best friends who actually did finish with his electrical engineering degree and became a medical doctor, and one of my best friends, but unfortunately passed away back in 2012. That's another story. Um, we we reflected on how we met, and we all remembered it was EM314, Engineering Mechanics 314. You know, we're sitting sort of in the balcony. I mean, these are really big auditoriums. And, and I remember my friend said to me, oh, yeah, I remember sitting next to you because you looked smart, you know. <laughs> You know, he's Asian too, so I don't know what stereotyping is going on there. And then that's where I met another one of my friends as well, who happens to be Korean-American, and the other guy's Chinese-American, and then there's myself, right? So we became really close friends and lab partners and all that, um, purely because of proximity, right? It's not as if we interviewed everyone in the class and figured, oh, you know, I think we have the most in common, let's be friends. It's proximity, and it's amazing how much we're creatures of habit that that first day of class, you know, it's so important because where you sit, you know, you're not really going to change because I dare you to go into a brand new class, you know, when classrooms open up in the future and just sit in a different seat each time you go to class, right? Uh, most students won't be doing that. And uh, so, yeah, we end up being friends because of proximity. It takes all the romance out of it, too, right? When you think about romantic partners and how you all met and it was fate and everything. No, it's because they live two doors down from you. <laughs> you know, sometimes social psychologists take all the fun and the mystique out of uh, out of some of these things, like our friendships. You know, it's not that deep. It's just because, you know, take out a ruler. It's because they were closer to you. And that was the case in many of these kinds of studies, whether it's in a dormitory. And it was true, I lived in a dormitory my first year in college. And who did I spend most of my time with? My roommate and the guys next door who I have nothing in common with, right? One guy I remember, uh, oh yeah, Mike, yeah. Uh, he loved to do pranks, right? The kind of pranks that I would never do. Like one time he just emptied out the 
the dorm room to make his roommate think that uh, they were robbed. Okay, so he had everything flipped over, you know, just just random gags like that. And one time he had a friend come over, a female friend, uh, pretending that the female friend was a was an escort. Okay, that he, that his roommate had already paid for. So they just sort of let this run on and on to put that guy in an awkward situation. Um, yeah, so this guy, Mike, you know, I've never seen him since that first year of college. So, you know, but that year, that that was, those were the people I hung out with um, that year. Yeah, and this guy, Mike, oh, I need to look him up because he also rigged the laundry room so that uh, somehow he attached some string to quarters so that the laundry would just run and you don't have to spend money to, and the, he did that with the vending machines too. I'm sure this guy is in Silicon Valley and he's probably inventing rockets and stuff. But yeah. Um, okay, so let's move on. Um, so yeah, so a lot of these social psych topics I think are just amazing and a lot of fun. Um, there's a topic of attribution. Um, I could talk a little bit about that. Attribution theory is basically how we, in essence, judge other people. So when we try to think about why someone else does something, the reason that we come up with is called an attribution. You're attributing a cause for someone's behavior. So if you're watching the news and they're talking about someone who, you know, committed mass murder, okay, and you're thinking in your mind, why did that person do that? They must be nuts. They must be crazy. They must be a lunatic. They must be mentally ill. They must have, you know, all these explanations come into your head. Those are attributions. And the kind of attributions we make for ourselves and for other people, there are patterns that come about and how we make these attributions, right? And these attributions, be, in essence, become judgments of other people. So one very popular concept in social psych is called the fundamental attribution error, error as in a mistake. That is, when we view other people and we explain why they did something just in our head, you know, oh, this person, did, you know, someone's driving fast down the freeway, passes you by, right, and, and it startles you. And your instant response is that person must be, okay, whatever answer you come up with. That judgment, okay, is often dispositional, meaning it's something about the person, it's their disposition, it's something about their character, something about their intelligence, you know, personality, it's something within them that caused that behavior, right? The opposite of that would be situations. So we would explain that, so if someone cuts you off on the freeway when you're driving, almost causing an accident, and you immediately yell, you, you know, right? And that's supposed to be swear words, okay? Then you're committing the fundamental attribution error because you're assuming that their driving behavior is caused by caused by them. That is their disposition. That they're an a hole. They're you know they're a horrible person. They're just nuts. Okay. But what if in reality that person was driving fast for a particular reason? They're running late. They have a medical emergency. You know it doesn't really matter what it is, but there usually is a reason. Right now, when you're driving around this way, 
because you have a legitimate reason for doing so, you're not going to be giving yourself the finger and saying, yeah, I'm the a-hole, you know. No, you have a situational explanation for your driving behavior. So, so this uh, lopsidedness, that is, we overwhelmingly make dispositional judgments of other people, right? Oh, that person made an A on the test because they're smart. Oh, that person flunked because they're not smart, right? But for yourself, you may not make those explanations, right? Um, so attribution theory really is quite, uh, and we can go down this rabbit hole and talk some more, and I may talk about it in a separate podcast. I, I have an exercise that I do in one of my classes about making judgments and placing blame, blaming the victim, and and I want to make a podcast out of that. I think my, my students enjoy it very much, and I thought I'd bring that to everybody else too. Okay, all right, so that's enough about social psychology. Um, but I hope uh, you can find some good resources to my listener and make sense of those subjects as well. And I will try to talk about social psych more often as well. Okay, now this is an interesting question from a Twitter uh, person. And they were talking about how they have a friend. And <laughs> Okay, now I'm not going to make assumptions here, but I'll just take the word for it that they're talking about somebody else. That they have an addiction to stress response. Now, I wasn't sure, so I had to follow up and, and ask. So let me just read what they wrote. I meant how some might sometimes willingly seek chaos and unpredictability, something along the lines of wanting to be under continuous stress. In the case of my friend, he stated that stability or a situation where he does not feel stressed often feels boring like something's missing but at the same time he gets a really bad mental state when he's faced with work stress okay so that's interesting so this is where understanding psychological theory helps right it helps us to frame and understand behavior and, and it doesn't mean it's the only way to explain it but it gives us a structure to make sense of things right so this person took that description and and ran with the addiction explanation right that's that's an example of trying to apply some structure so uh, I can approach this from a variety of different angles one could be from motivational theory and that is maybe that person has a high threshold for stimulation right so they're motivated by stimulation and so when things were kind of boring you know kind of like a thrill seeker, they would rather have some drama and stress. That's, even though that might feel bad, but it's better than being bored, okay? So that could be one example or one lens or perspective to try to understand why a person tends to want stress and some drama versus just being bored, right? Uh, where everything's too predictable and personality traits could be an explanation, right? There are some who prefer predictability, and there are others who prefer to be surprised and, and be more spontaneous. So that could play a part as well. So that could explain why that person really doesn't handle stress very well, even though it seems like they like the stress, right? Uh, and that apparently the 
the listener's friend is fairly young. Okay. Okay. So that that's one angle to look at. So it's not necessarily an addiction, um, but you can also think about it through the lens of behaviorism and reinforcement, right? So the idea here is that everything we do, you know, you take the word cho- take the word choice out of it, right? Behaviors believe that our behaviors are reinforced by external forces, right? So it's not about internal motivation and all that. But maybe someone is choosing to do something because they're getting something out of it. They're getting a reinforcement out of it, right? So is it possible this friend who may be getting some reinforcement out of the drama and they're not getting much reinforcement when things are too predictable? See, that's just another perspective to help explain the same thing. And that's how psychological theories work. All right, another Twitter user talked about uh, focused on a variety of things such as politics, the winter storms, etc. I think this is a fellow Texan. I'm not. I don't quite remember now. I didn't write down their information. I just wrote down what they wrote. And uh, cope, coping mechanisms become self-destructive. So it's similar to what the other person was asking. For example, social media can be a great escape but too much can lead to problems in self-esteem and some would argue addiction, right? So so there are a couple of things here. One is talking about how to cope when there's so many overwhelming things happening, right? And is it possible that one way of coping, let's say with a pandemic, is to go online and make connections and spend more screen time, but then that screen time becomes destructive. And yes, of course, uh, anything that we use as a coping mechanism can be destructive, right? Even exercise as a coping mechanism can be destructive. One can be actually be addicted to running to the point where they injure themselves and there's not the health harm benefit is imbalance, uh, is not imbalance is what I mean, okay? And so, yeah, that's one way to think about it. And one concept that I like to borrow from Eastern medicine is the idea of the yin and the yang and the idea of harmony and balance. And so whenever you think about mental disorders or just any kind of behavior in general, think about balance, right? That wellness oftentimes is a sense of balance, right? If you think about all those blood tests you take, right, that has a minimum and maximum range and you want to be in the middle, that's in a sense describing how our body chemistry has a certain kind of harmony and balance to it, a homeostasis that it likes to be at, and that it doesn't like to have too much of something or too little of something, right? And so, yes, I would totally agree that our coping mechanisms, on the one hand, can be healthy, and it's all depending on context. Now, in a non-pandemic world, let's, you know, let's say five years ago, because uh even during the Trump years, I think it was a little bit too much drama. So let's say Obama years or even earlier, okay, when things were a little bit more calm, that you could probably more objectively measure screen time on devices and come up with an average number of, well, this much a day is really too much and this much a day is okay. It's a healthy outlet. But that kind of changed, right, with the pandemic. I mean, I know we're watching a lot more television than before, because we're indoors more, right? And also we're on our screens a lot more. So it's a lot, it takes a lot of effort to regain a sense of balance by going outside uh, 
the, a lot of those outlets were taken away or more restricted or they're higher risk, right? So we have to be challenged at trying to regain that balance. But of course, that ratio of screen time and non-screen time is going to be different now during the COVID-19 lockdown years, not necessarily lockdown literally, but you know, uh, where we're more isolated, okay? And so hopefully I address some of that, but yeah, those are, I agree with, with that assessment there that our coping mechanisms sometimes can go too far. All right, so here's another one. Oh, this was just from yesterday or the day before. This is a listener in India who emailed me directly and wanted to know if I believed in karma. And this person says that they actually uh, are surrounded by many Hindus, but they themselves are agnostic. And they're wondering if um, this belief in karma is a psychological thing. Well, well, okay, everything is a psychological thing. Let me put it that way, right? Um, it's just like my friend who teaches political science says that everything is political. Um, I would love to have him uh, as a guest on my podcast, by the way. We get along quite well, even though we don't agree about much on politics. But he's a political science professor. would love to get his perspective on things. Uh, okay, so karma. Do I personally believe in karma? Well, I think if if I were to think of myself as more scientifically minded, I would say that karma, and this goes into spirituality too. So, you know, you can be a scientist and be religious at the same time. It's They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I love that phrase, by the way. You use it more in your in your conversations. Mutually exclusive, meaning that there's, there's no overlap. Um, I personally am not very religious. I would think that I'm a little bit spiritual. I do enjoy learning about Buddhism, but I don't know if I would call myself a Buddhist, but what I learned from the monks in Myanmar when we were there, learning about Buddhism, and, and, and my wife's family is definitely Buddhist, okay? That's how they they identify themselves. It's common for many Burmese people to be Buddhist. and But for myself, I was never raised going to church, or I did have a phase where I was baptized, and I was a Baptist and, and Christian, and then and then that sort of slipped and now um been mostly agnostic most of my life but not necessarily atheists um i don't have a real strong conviction i guess for me when i think of myself in the role of an educator i felt like for my own benefit i should be relatively neutral uh and open-minded right so i try not to make judgments i felt like if i were to be identified myself as one particular faith and I would judge other faiths more harshly and lose objectivity. Now, I know that's not true. It's possible to be objective even though you're following a particular faith. So uh, I I'm, I really follow the American ideal of freedom of religion here where I totally respect people who follow whatever faith they want to follow because in the end the main doctrines of most major religions are very similar. Um, those who preach hate while holding a religious text are those who are, I believe, misinterpreting and and using that for nefarious purposes. I love that word nefarious, too. Uh, try to use that in more conversation. Um, so karma is very similar to the idea 
of the just world hypothesis. You know, it's the, basically the idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. People deserve what they get. So if you do good, you end up with good results. If you're a bad person, do horrible things, you'll end up, you know, being punished in some way. And I think it provides a lot of people comfort with that idea, knowing that if you're being harmed or there are bad people out there, the mindset that one day they'll get their punishment, even if it's not today, might be comforting. But we also live in a world where good things happen to bad people, that bad people get away with things and they don't seem to ever suffer the negative consequences. And also bad things happen to really good people and innocent people and children, right? So I think when we hold on to that just world, that there is an invisible justice in the world, and I think karma lines up with that idea, that um, when things occur in life that fall out of that model, fall out of that predictability of good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, then... Um, then I think it's hard to cope with. It's much more difficult to cope with that situation. Okay, um, I think that's about it, right? 40 minutes. Uh, my transcribing app basically stopped. It has a 40-minute limit. <laughs> so um, whoever is going to read the transcript is not going to get the full picture. All right, thanks for your patience. I hope this was interesting for you. Maybe this is a good way for you to kill 40 minutes. Hopefully you had a 40-minute commute or a 40-minute walk that... Uh, I didn't bore you terribly. Okay. Oh, make sure to look in the description. Somebody please send me some voice messages. I want to use them in future podcasts to liven things up a little bit. Okay. And uh, I just attended a four-day online conference. Of course, it's a virtual conference on academic integrity. So I have a really juicy title for that next podcast. Okay, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to call it the psychology of cheating, although that's going to be part of the discussion. So look for that uh, maybe next week. I don't know. I should, shouldn't be promising, but my next podcast will be over that particular subject. So if you're a student, you're an instructor, or just an individual who is wondering about these things, I think that would be um, a good one to listen to. Okay, folks, take it easy, uh, be safe, and I'll talk to you next time. Hey there, thanks for listening to this podcast today. Can you do me a big favor um, just so that this podcast gets heard by more students of psychology and other people interested in the field? Uh, go to Apple Podcasts and put a little rating there if you like and uh, a brief uh, review, okay? And you can also contact me directly using the links in the description, whether it's Twitter or email, with any suggestions or feedback that you may have to make the show better. And uh, if there are any topics you want me to talk about, I can add them. And if you want to support me by buying me a coffee, the methods are listed in the description as well. Again, thanks and have a great day.